All right. Thanks, church. Thanks for praying about that. Well, today we're going to uh, jump into our study of Hebrews. So if you'd like to turn into Hebrews chapter 8, I invite you to do so right now. <clears throat> we are moving along in our study pretty quickly. Um, already at chapter 8 of a 13-chapter book, so we're doing well. And last week, we began an introductory discussion, really, on the New Covenant. Chapter 8 began with the author revealing something to us. He revealed the main, the main point, the main point of everything that he's been saying so far. And uh, he said it in verse 1 of chapter 8. He said, now, this is the main point. I love when authors do that, make it pretty easy for simple men like me. All right, here's the main point. This is the main point of the things we are saying. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. The high priestly role of Jesus is the main point. The main point of everything the author of Hebrews has been talking about so far. And if Jesus is uh, such a high priest, as it says here, then it follows then that he must be the mediator of a new covenant, of a better covenant, because that was the role of the priest. They mediated the old covenant. But if Jesus is a new high priest, then there must be a new and better covenant. So as an introduction to the main discussion of the new covenant, last week the author looked at two aspects of Jesus' better priestly service. And this was point one. I put it on the screen again just to remind you of it, the better priestly service of uh, Jesus. For his priestly service to be better, then he has to operate from two better things, a better position and a better Place And that's what we looked at last week. The better position was the heavenly seat that is mentioned there in verse, uh, verse 1. He's seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. He doesn't operate from an earthly temple or an earthly sanctuary or an earthly throne. He is at the right hand of the throne in the heavens. In fact, we looked at that throne, that to, to be at the right hand of the throne, that's a place of honor and great authority, but also... Because he is seated, we looked at this being a picture of his finished work, that his atoning work, his work of redeeming those to him, is finished because there were no seats in the temple. There were no seats in the tabernacle. Priests didn't sit down. Their work never ended. But ours did. Our high priest finished his work, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne. So Jesus has a new priestly seat. He ministers from a position of honor and power. But he also ministers from a new place. And this is mentioned in verse 2. The place is a heavenly sanctuary. Verse 2 says he was a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord erected and not man. So the sanctuary, it's also called the true tabernacle, uh, was not an earthly one, but a heavenly one. It's one that the Lord built, not that man built. The earthly sanctuary, the earthly tabernacle was built by men. It was built by Moses. And uh, that kind of comes out in verse 5. It was built according to a pattern. Verse 5 says, who served the copy and shadow of the heavenly things as Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle. For he said, see that you make all things according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. Very interesting passage. Well, the earthly copy or shadow represented a heavenly reality. That is the idea here. It wasn't the express image of it. It represented it. And that really applies to everything. That applies to not just the tabernacle, but everything around it. The law, 
the, the priests, the ministry of their work. So all these things were simply patterns. They were simply shadows of what was to come, what was to become the reality. And the reality has now come. The perfect has now come. Jesus serves in the heavenly sanctuary, not the earthly one. So he has a better ministry. He mediates a, a new covenant which is a better one. And that's really where we ended last week in verse 6. But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry inasmuch as he is also mediator of a better covenant, which was established on better promises. So today, I teased you last week today, today we're going to look at this new covenant, but the better promises that accompany the new covenant. And there might be some parts that are surprising to you, although if you were at Teach the Word yesterday, maybe not. Those guys that taught yesterday helped me a bit. So Maybe we'll see how we get through this. So we're going to start uh, looking at the New Covenant Part 2 today, and we'll look at verses 7 to 13. So let me just read through the passage to begin with. Verse 7, For if that first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. Because finding fault with them, he says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they did not continue in my covenant, and I disregarded them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind, and I will write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. None of them shall teach his neighbor and none his brother, saying, Know the Lord." For all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness, and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. In that, he says, a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. Now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for the opportunity to to be in your word, to have your word, the words of God Almighty. And I pray, Lord, that we be reminded of that, that we are listening to what you say today. And so, Lord, we pray for your spirit to be with us, to guide us into truth as you promise us, Lord, and and that we might be edified and encouraged by all that is said today for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Well, so last week we looked at point one, the better priestly service. So we're starting with point uh, two. So I kind of cut the sermon in, in half today. So point two is this, the better covenant. That's what we're coming to. The better covenant begins in verse seven. So verse seven says this, for if that first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. So this is really the same line of reasoning that he used back in chapter seven regarding the Levitical priesthood, this idea that it, it must not have been perfect if, if we have a new priest. And in fact, look at it in verse uh, 11 of chapter 7. He said that, Therefore, if perfection were through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there that another priest should rise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be called according to the order of Aaron? Remember, the priests came from the line of, of Aaron. They were Levites. And so if, if that was perfect, what need was there for another order that, to come from the line of uh, Melchizedek? And his reasoning is obvious. Well, it wasn't perfect. It needed replacing. Well, that's the same line of reasoning here. If, if um, that first covenant, it said, had been faultless, had been uh, perfect, then no place would have been sought for a second. So he is saying that it has a fault. It's not faultless. 
it has a fault. And we've been pointing out various faults along the way, haven't we? Various faults with the Old Covenant all along the way. But here, the author pins down the primary fault. Where did the primary fault lie? Well, let me tell you. It lied with Israel themselves. They were the fault. Look at verse 8. Because finding fault with them, he says, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord. Here is the fundamental reason the Old Covenant failed. It was the sinfulness of the nation of Israel. They failed in their moral responsibility to fulfill the law. When I say, say law, I mean the Mosaic law, the, the Ten Commandments written on stone tablets. That law was given to them. They were to uphold that law, and they failed to uphold that law. And so the question comes, what is the purpose of the law then? If the law came and no one can live up to it, what's the purpose of the law? And if you read the book of Romans, well, that's what Paul talks about in the book of Romans because he is debating the Jew there as well. If the law was, was, was fault, uh, faulty, then, then what was the purpose of it? In Romans 7, verse 7 and 8, he says this, well, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law. For I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, you shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity by the commandment, produced in me all manner of evil desire. For apart from the law, sin was dead. What he's saying is a law revealed sin. That's what it did. Listen, sinners don't know they're sinning. Sinners just do what's natural. You don't know that you're sinning. He's I didn't even know what covetousness was until the, the law said, well, you shall not covet. We, we, just, we just sin. But the law reveals that we have an inherent weakness, that we are indeed sinful. And because we're sinful, we're, we have no ability to keep uh, the law. We, we just can't, we can't do it, the Mosaic law. And because that fault was very evident in the life of Israel, all you have to do is read the Old Testament all the way through. I'm in First and Second Kings and Chronicles now. I mean, you just keep reading through. They're like, they were faulty. <laughs> they, they could not keep the covenant. So, so God promised then a new covenant. Now, this, is, this gets great. Look at verse 8 again. He says, because finding fault with them, he says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they did not continue in my covenant, and I disregarded them, says the Lord. So beginning right here and continuing all the way through verse 12, we have uh, the author quoting from the Old Testament. He is quoting from a prophet. The prophet is Jeremiah, and the passage is Jeremiah 31, verses 31 to 34. It's a very important passage. Now, all of Jeremiah 30 to 33, those four chapters, are all about hope and restoration to Israel. If you've read through that, Israel is in desperate need of hope. Why? They're in exile, or they're going into exile. He says, don't worry, I'm going to make a new covenant, and I'll fulfill all these things, but right now you're going into exile. So to understand this, you kind of have to back up a bit, just a little bit of history lesson, just to make sure we all understand. So Israel, Israel was promised to enter the promised land, right? That was what they were given. Uh, uh, they were about to enter the promised land. They failed to enter the promised land. They're about to enter the promised land. The second generation is about to do that. Second generation is about to go into the promised land. The book of Deuteronomy is saying, yeah, don't do what your fathers did. They all died. But you need to know something. You need to know the law. And so he says, you need to write uh, this down on whitewashed stones. 
So they wrote it down on whitewashed stones. And now what I want you to do is I want you to put all the, the blessings for obedience on one mountain, and I want you to put the curses on another mountain. Do you remember reading through that? Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. So there's a literal stone on the mountain to remind them of, oh yeah, curses over there, obedience over here. Hmm, which mountain should I go up? You see, it's a very visual a picture. And so on Mount Gerizim, you have the blessings. And when you read through uh, these, uh, they're just terrible, terrible curses that come along. If you, if you, you do disobey me, you know, this is what's going to happen to your health. This is what's going to happen to your property. This is what's going to happen to your people. All these terrible things. But it culminates with this. In Deuteronomy 28, 36, the Lord will bring you and the king whom you set over you to a nation which neither you nor your fathers have known. And there you shall serve other gods. Wood and stone. What's he talking about? He's talking about captivity. The ultimate curse is going to be, you're going to actually be taken out of the land and you'll be serving other kings. And not only will you serve other kings, you're going to serve their gods. That was the ultimate curse. Well, this is what happens, right? In fact, in here, he says, the Lord's going to bring you and the king whom you set over you. Now in Deuteronomy, there was no king. God is king. So this is even prophetic, isn't it? One day, you're actually going to have a king set over you, but never mind. One day, you're going to disobey me, and you do. God's going to take you and that king, and you're going to go serve another king. Well, later that happens. Judah and Israel, uh, Israel becomes a divided kingdom, doesn't it? Into two. Israel is in the north. Judah is in the south. That's right after the time of Solomon. It's a divided kingdom. And Israel in the north is taken into captivity. Now, you can read about this in 2 Kings, and I'd like to take you there real quick. Keep your finger in Hebrews. We'll come back to this. But in, in 2 Kings, way back to the book of history there, 17. 2 Kings 17 speaks of um, Israel's being taken into captivity. 2 Kings 17, and I'll just look at verse 5. And if you don't want to turn there, don't worry. I'll just read it to you. But this speaks of the nation of Assyria coming in to capture Israel. In verse 5, it says, Now the king of Assyria went throughout all the land and went up to Samaria in the north, besieged it for three years. And in the ninth year of Hosea, the king of Assyria took Samaria and carried Israel away to Assyria and placed them in Hala and by the Habor and the river Gozen in the city of the Medes. For so it was, this is important, that the children of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them up out of the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh king of Egypt, and they had feared other gods and had walked in the statutes of the nations whom the Lord had cast out from before the children of Israel and of the kings of Israel, which they had made. That's a, that's a fulfillment of Deuteronomy 28. You, you are taken to another king. You're going to serve and fear their gods because of your sin. Now, that was Israel. That was the one part of the kingdom in the north. What happened to Judah in the south? Just turn to 2 Kings 25. So we're in 17. Just go to the right a few more pages to chapter 25. And chapter 25 describes a new nation, the nation of uh, Babylon. In chapter 25, verse 1, it says, Now it came to pass in the ninth year of his reign, in the tenth month, on the tenth day of the month, that Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and all his army came up against Jerusalem and encamped against it. They built a siege wall against it all around. So the city was besieged until the eleventh year of King Zedekiah. By the ninth day of the fourth month, the famine had become so severe in the city that there was no food for the people of the land. Then the city wall was broken through. 
And all the men of war fled at night by way of the gate between the two walls, which was by the king's garden, even though the Chaldeans were still encamped all around against the city. And the king went by the way of the plain. But the army of the Chaldeans pursued the king, and they overtook him in the plains of Jericho, and all his army was scattered from him. They break through the wall, and they capture Jerusalem, the capital of Judah. That's 586 BC. So both kingdoms go into exile. God sends them both in there. Now, going back to our passage, this is interesting. Why did that happen? He says in verse 9, because they did not continue in my covenant. And... I disregarded them. So because they didn't continue my covenant, that's why they went there. So where was the fault? The fault was Israel. Israel did not keep up their end of the covenant. You see, God's rejection often comes to those who can't fulfill the law, can't keep the law. Not often, always. That's, that's the point. And the great fault of the old covenant was that it gave no provision to the people, no resources to the people to fulfill the law. Just a whole bunch of commandments now Good luck. Try, try not to covet. Try not to murder. Try not to steal. Try not to do these things. See, they were unable to fulfill their end of the covenant. So we need a new covenant. We need a new one. So God says, I'm going to make a new covenant. God's going to bring back his people to the land. He's going to fulfill the promises that he made to Abraham and to David. Now, this gets really important. We were at the men's conference a couple of months ago, and I actually met a pastor there who wasn't a Calvary Chapel pastor. He just saw the, the conference online, wanted to go to a conference and signed himself up. So it was really interesting. Got to talk with him. Doesn't believe the same that we do in a lot of things. And one of those things was that he believed that God was done with Israel and that his promises were fulfilled at the end of Joshua. Joshua fulfilled everything. God fulfilled everything in there. Done. And so anything that you find in the New Testament that mentions of, of Israel, that's simply a spiritual uh, Israel. Well, I gave him a, Tommy Fretwell was at that conference, and Tommy Fretwell was at the conference yesterday, who has written some amazing little books. Why Israel is one of them. I highly recommend you get that. It's a little pamphlet, and really quickly, in just a, a few pages, can tell, tell you, explain you, really, to you the purpose of Israel. It's called Understanding God's Plan for Israel and the Nations. I gave him the, his two books, and then I also wrote down two passages for him to read. I said, you should read Jeremiah 31, which is the passage we're reading right now. It's in Hebrews, but that's what Hebrews is quoting, Jeremiah 31. And I also said you should read Ezekiel 36, because there was a misunderstanding about Israel, which then relates to the new covenant. And you can get real danger if you don't understand what we're talking about. What God is saying here is, I'm going to make a new covenant, a new one, which means not the old one, a new covenant, which means also it's a different covenant. Notice what he says, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them out of the land of Egypt. What day was that? What happened? What law did they get when they came out of Egypt? The Mosaic law. That's the covenant that he made with them. I'm not going to make one according to that covenant. So make, make sure you understand that. It's a new one. It's a different one. But also, and this is key, it is a covenant with Israel. And it's right there at the beginning. I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. That is a new covenant. So in regards to uh, covenants being the same or different, that is the one part that is the same. The old one was a covenant with Israel. And guess what? The new one is a covenant with Israel. Now, this is an important concept to grasp. So pull on your waders. We're stepping into some deep waters. Okay? I need you to understand this. God has not made a covenant with the church. We don't have 
a covenant with God. God did not make a covenant with the Gentiles. He didn't make a covenant with us. He made a covenant, what's it say? With the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Now, those that think the church replaced Israel will go, well, that's really meaning the church. Really hard to do. If that were the case, he probably shouldn't quote Jeremiah 31. He probably should just say, but now there's a new covenant and it's really to the church. But the author of Hebrews doesn't do that. He says, but let me tell you what God says about the new covenant. It's with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In fact, both the old covenant and the new covenant were made with Israel. Now, the old Abrahamic covenant, I'm going to try to explain this to you before you walk out. Okay, the old Abrahamic covenant was a promise that all the nations of the earth would be blessed, wasn't it? All the nations of the earth would be blessed through who? Israel. Yeah, through Israel. That's the Abrahamic covenant. And so when you come to the New Testament, you find Jesus saying things like this. Salvation is of the Jews. Now he's talking about a new kingdom. He's talking about the gospel. But then he says, but salvation is of the Jews. Now, why would Jesus say that? Well, because salvation is of the Jews. That is the uh, a, a sort of an essence of the new covenant. The new covenant was promised to Israel in the Old Testament, Jeremiah 31. That's what's coming to us here. But then Jesus arrives on the scene. We're waiting for it to be fulfilled. We're waiting for the new covenant to happen. He's promised it. One day I'm going to give you a new covenant. When did it come? Well, we celebrate it all the time, don't we? Jesus comes. He takes his disciples who are Jews to a a celebration of the Passover, which is a Jewish feast. And then he takes up a cup. He says, this is the new covenant. This is the new covenant. It's the new covenant in my blood. That's the new covenant. I am starting a new covenant with you. I've instituted the new covenant. My father promised in Jeremiah 31, it has come. It is now here, the new covenant. Now, there's a great quote from Thomas Fretwell's book just about this aspect. I'll go further here in a moment, but about communion. He says, every time we take communion, we are remembering this covenant. We do. We go, oh, it's the covenant, yeah. But such familiarity with it has often led to a triumphalist approach on behalf of the church because there's a tendency for Christians to think it's a covenant that was made solely with the church. But that is not the case. It's a new thing. Now, the old Mosaic covenant has expired. We need to be very careful here since the Bible teaches that even the new covenant was made with the house of Israel and not the church. So then what are we talking about? How do we get saved? Well, the New Testament teaches that when Gentiles are saved, they become spiritual descendants of who? Abraham. A few weeks ago, I told you all, you have the you have same father as I do, Father Abraham. You remember that? And we used to sing that song, Father Abraham. He's your spiritual father. Galatians 3, Paul is explaining this in Galatians 3, 7 to 8. Therefore, know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, that's us, that's the church, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, in you all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. This is what's amazing. The Abrahamic covenant is referred to here, and it's referred to as what? The gospel. Do you see that? It's called the gospel. And God foreseeing that, what would happen is that he was going to save Gentiles by faith as well said, well, this is a gospel. I'll preach this gospel to you. It's incredible. So the covenant is fulfilled, folks, in us when anyone accepts the one requirement of the new covenant. There's only one, one requirement. 
You don't have to fulfill all these laws. That's what's great about the Mosaic law being gone. There's one requirement. Faith in Jesus. That is it. You fulfill that one requirement. You have faith in Jesus. Then you are a spiritual descendant of Abraham. You have come in to the new covenant. And all the blessings of the new covenant are yours. It's the other way around, isn't it? The church hasn't replaced Israel. We actually get salvation through them. And Galatians 3.29 says, If you are Christ's, then you are whose seed? Abraham's seed. And heirs according to the promise. What promise? Uh, The promise in Jeremiah 31. That's what he's saying. The promise of salvation. So let me explain this a little bit more here. While the covenant was made with Israel... Israel, as a nation, they're not a saved nation. They have forfeited many spiritual blessings. They have forfeited that because of their disobedience. But they have not forfeited forfeited the covenant. They can't forfeit that. Now, Romans 11, I want to take you there. I originally just had some scriptures. Well, I still have them up here, but I thought, I'm just going to take you there because there's just so much in Romans 11. This is Paul's whole point in Romans 11. If you ever read through that and you came out so confused, I hope to not leave you the same way today. But Romans 11 is really all about this idea. Romans 11, verse 11. I say then, now he's speaking about Israel, okay? Have they stumbled that they should fall? Certainly not. But through their fall, to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. So because Israel has fallen into sin, Salvation has come to the Gentiles. Now, verse 12 says, If their fall is riches for the world, and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? He said, God's not done with them. They they haven't forfeited the covenant. In fact, Romans 11, 28 to 29, you skip down there, says, Concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But concerning uh, the election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. For the gifts... And the calling of God are irrevocable. You see that? Irrevocable. So they're enemies of the gospel, but for our sake, because they are so, we have sort of, we have, well, the whole picture given in the middle verses is this idea of a tree. And we've been grafted into the tree. The the spiritual nourishment and the blessings of that tree come to us, the salvation being the the biggest. And, And so we're told not to be arrogant about it. But you know, the church at large is, and not just arrogant, but hostile to Israel. But Romans 11 is, it says the opposite. In fact, in verse um, 17, it says, If some of the branches were broken off, so some of Israel was broken off, okay, and you being a wild olive tree were grafted in among them, and with them be- became a partaker of the root and the fatness of the olive tree, do not boast against the branches. But if you do boast, remember that you do not support the root, but the root supports you. You will say, then branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. Well, well said. Because of unbelief, they were broken off. And you stand by faith. Do not be haughty, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he may not spare you either. <laughs> right? It's a big, big warning against arrogance. Uh, I think this is probably bigger in America, to be honest. Bigger in America, because there's this idea that God made a covenant with America. And the church in America is this chosen people. I mean, you got to battle this like hard. Like, we're not a covenant people. Israel is a covenant people, and there are no other covenant people. It's Israel. So look at Romans 11, 25, 26. 
For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved as it is written. The deliverer will come out of Zion and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. The blindness that Israel has now is for a purpose, is to bring in a number of Gentiles. I don't know what that number is. God knows the fullness of the Gentiles. And when that comes in at that point, God will then take away their sins, the sins of Israel. Amazing. There's more that we can say, but I just want you to understand that that I didn't want to just gloss over that this was a covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. It is with them. It's with Israel. God is not done with Israel. Our salvation comes through the covenant that has been given to them. So it's a new covenant. It's a different covenant. It's a covenant with Israel. But Gentiles have been blessed to share in the spiritual blessings of the covenant, chief of which is salvation. And that's why Romans 1.16, this was one of our memory verses, I believe, a while back. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first, and also for the Greek. Salvations of the Jews. Now, understanding that, that's not the main point of all this, but I certainly didn't want to gloss over it. Now we're going to look at the better promises of the new covenant, okay? The better promises that make this covenant, this new covenant, a better covenant. It begins in verse 10. Look at verse 10. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind. I will write them on their hearts. This new covenant is based on a better promise. The better promise is that it has a better nature. Better nature. First first better promise here, okay? Meaning this, the nature of the old covenant was all external. The law was literally given on stone tablets. They whitewashed stones and put them on mountains. People wore them on their wrists. They put them on their foreheads. They wrote them on the doorposts of their house. Everything about it was external. Yet at the same time, God, God told them, the words which I, I command you today need to be written on your hearts. It was all external. It had no heart change. And that was the problem. They needed internal change. But everything was external. The parallel passage to Jeremiah here is Ezekiel 36. I mentioned it earlier. Uh, it gets it a little bit more specific. Look at this, Ezekiel 36, 26. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and you will do them. I mean, how more specific can you get? This is part of the new covenant. Uh, don't worry about it. There's not going to be external stuff. We don't have laws written on the walls. He says, I'm going to write them right on your hearts, and I'm going to put a spirit within you. And then because you have the law in your hearts, because that spirit's within you, then you're going to keep my judgments, and you'll delight to do them. See, they needed to do hearts, but they, the law had no ability whatsoever to change their hearts. But the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is the only changer of hearts. They had not yet been given the Holy Spirit, in the Old Testament. That is a New Testament promise. I have to take you to Jesus' final moments with his disciples, okay? His final moments with his disciples in that, that feast when he said this is the new covenant. After that, he began to teach his disciples. Now, this is fascinating. Look at, look at uh, John 14, 15. He comes out with this. If you love me, keep my commandments. Now, if you're a Jewish disciple, what are you thinking? Oh, here we go again, <laughs> right? It starts with just keeping commandments, we blew it the first time. We can't keep the commandments. 
And now here comes Jesus. We have a new covenant. Great. What's the new covenant? A keep my commandments. Oh, like, it's hoping for some loophole. Guess what? There is. Because in the very next verse, he says this. And I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever, the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Ah, this is amazing. Jesus will pray the Father. Jesus' high priestly service to you and I begins with a request to the Father to send the Holy Spirit, the helper, to you and I. We have a helper, the parakletos, literally the one who comes alongside to help us. The Holy Spirit is the one that guides us into truth, that helps us to understand truth and obey truth. His teaching continues in that upper room. In John 16, 13, he says, However, when he, the Spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will tell you things to come. Now, in one sense, that's certainly specific to the disciples about what they'll write in terms of the Gospels, but this is true to all, that he guides us into truth. He guides us into understanding his word. And in this way, God writes his law on our hearts. It's on our minds because our our hearts and our minds are transformed by the work of the Holy Spirit. He does that in us. So the very fact that this covenant is able to affect an internal change, an internal change makes its very nature better because the other one was all external and had no ability to change it on the inside. But also there's a better relationship here. This is pretty exciting too. Second half of verse 10, that very last sentence, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Now that phrase was uttered by God to the children of Israel way back in Exodus. In Exodus 6, 7, he said it to them, I will take you as my people and I will be your God. And then you shall know that I am the Lord, your God, who brings you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And he repeats that throughout the Old Testament. I'm going to be your God. You're going to be my people. You're going to be my people. I'm going to be your God. He, he says it over and over again. But was that fulfilled in, in everybody's hearing? Did they all experience that? No, we, we know they didn't. Many of them died in the wilderness under his judgment. But here under the new covenant, we have the promised helper and his law. He's in our minds. It's on our hearts. Amazing. And that fixes the fundamental flaw of the old covenant, doesn't it? We delight to do his will and we can do his will because we have the Holy Spirit in us. Now, a few verses after Jesus promised that, that promise of the helper, he, he continued with this statement. This is a very, very important passage. John 14, 21, a very important verse to memorize, actually. He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. That's amazing. Now, that's John 14, 21. This idea of obeying commandments, it's evidence of our love for him, and it brings us into a closer relationship with God than the Israelites ever experienced in the Old Covenant. But our obedience to Jesus, now get this, this is important, is evidence that we truly love him. If we don't obey him, it's evidence that we don't love God. And in fact, we're worse off. We're actually children of the devil. Now we're called that in 1 John 3.10. It's not me. 
1 John 3.10 says, In this the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. Now, this sounds pretty harsh. I think the point is clear here. Our obedience to God, now listen, we're not perfect, okay? But our, obedient, our desire to live obedience, obediently to him is evidence of something. It's evidence that we do love God. Those who practice righteousness do so. Now get this, okay? Because they have something in them that helps them to practice righteousness. You've got to get that connection. What is that something? It's the Holy Spirit. Those who don't practice righteousness, and I am going to say it this way, don't have the Holy Spirit. If you're not a practicer of righteousness, I'm not saying perfection, but if you live in constant sin, if you live a life that is um, evidence of, of I, 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 I like God, I, I like his church, if you, if you live in, in sinful lifestyles, you are practicing unrighteousness. And it is not evidence that you have the Holy Spirit. Listen, we can't obey God without a love for him, right? You can't really obey God. But maybe, oh, I love God. You can't do that without love for him. But let me tell you something else. You can't love him without the Holy Spirit. There's a lot of external things you could say and do, but you can't love him without the Holy Spirit. Love for God is not in us without the Holy Spirit. Romans 5, 5 says, Now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. You only love God and you only desire to please him and to practice righteousness and live obediently to him because you have the Holy Spirit. And if you don't, Maybe you like a lot of things about the church. Maybe you like the community. Maybe you like the fellowship. Maybe the people are great. Maybe the activities are fun. All those things are great. But listen, those things aren't salvation. If you don't have the Holy Spirit, you are not in a good place. You have to have the Holy Spirit. And listen, this is the new covenant. This is Jeremiah 31. I'm going to help you obey. It's not about following these laws and, boy, I hope, well, good luck. It didn't work the first time, but maybe it'll work with you people. No. I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit. But if you can't live a life in obedience to him, you don't have the Holy Spirit. I think a lot of people are too comfortable in their shoes. Maybe we need a little more uncomfortable. I don't mean just just sin once in a while. None of us are, are perfect. I'm talking about lifestyles, practicing unrighteousness. I fear people are deceived. Don't be deceived. So we have a better relationship because of this. You guys, we have the Holy Spirit. So our relationship is inherently better with God because we're able to obey him through the ministry of the Spirit. Not perfectly, but we have a genuine desire to do so because the Holy Spirit's in us. But there's something more. I found a great quote from R. Kent Hughes in his uh, commentary, Hebrews, an anchor of the soul. He says this, but there's also a tender, truer relationship of heart to heart, spirit to spirit. So that when he says, I will be their God and they will be my people, it's, a true, it's true in a deeper, more soul-satisfying way than those on the outside can imagine. I will be their God means he gives himself to us. I love that. And they will be my people means he takes us to himself. There's a better relationship. It's not because of you, though. It's because you have the Holy Spirit. And now you have a genuine love for God. And so there is a better relationship. That makes sense? Now, listen, of course, the ultimate fulfillment of this better relationship, we see it in Revelation 21, don't we? 
In Revelation 21, verse 3, he says, I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them. And here it is. And they shall be his people. God himself will be uh, with them and be their God. Now, the new heavens and the new earth, that is fulfilled, folks. We are his people, and he is our God. Both Jew and Gentile called his people. We have a better relationship. We also have a better knowledge. Look at verse 11. None of them shall teach his neighbor, none his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For all shall know me from the least of them to the greatest of them. The Old Covenant, this is important to understand this passage is a little confusing. The Old Covenant was corporately entered into by the nation of Israel. That is very important to understand. Not part of it, a nation. And the sign of the covenant was circumcision. The males had to be circumcised. That was a sign of them entering into the covenant by virtue of their obedience to that that act. But that didn't necessarily mean, to use a New Testament term, that they were saved, okay? They were a mixed community, an entire nation. Some believers, some unbelievers. Some were unbelievers in the nation of Israel. They were the people of God, but they were also a political entity. You have to understand that, okay? So they were a mixed community, And that's why some of them did not know the Lord. Some didn't know the Lord. Now listen, under the new covenant, every true member of it will know the Lord. From the least to the greatest, it says. How how can that be? Well, let me give you an example. Back in chapter 3 of Hebrews, okay, we were given a very graphic example of those that didn't love the Lord in Israel. And and, in chapter 3, verses 7 to 11, he says, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says today, If you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, in the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tested me, tried me, and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was angry with that generation, and I said, they always go astray in their hearts. They have not known my ways, so I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. What kept those Israelites from entering his rest? They went astray in their hearts, it says. They didn't know his ways. They didn't know their God. But the new covenant writes the law of God on our hearts and on our minds, and it brings us into a closer relationship with him so that we can know him. No one, this is important, no one in the new community then can fall away. Remember that passage about falling away? If you're in the new covenant, part of the new community here, you won't fall away. None of them will say, oh, say to his brother, know the Lord. No. All of them will know me. This is huge, folks. This is the new covenant. If you're in the new covenant, the one requirement of which is have faith in Jesus, okay? You know the Lord. You have a relationship with him. You will not fall away. You will not fail to enter God's rest. All members of the new covenant, from the greatest to the least, know the Lord, Okay, so what's it mean to know the Lord? Well, Jesus said it as clear as possible in John 17, 3, in the same upper room. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. Knowing God is eternal life. Do you see how all this connects? This is part of the new covenant, folks. You, in the new covenant, know God. You have a better relationship than we see in the old covenant. They didn't have a relationship with him. They were left stranded in the wilderness because their hearts went astray. We also have a better forgiveness, and this is great. Verse 12. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness, 
and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. That's amazing. I will remember no more. This is the capstone of the new covenant, folks. What the old covenant promised but couldn't give, right? Complete, utter forgiveness. It couldn't do that. Hebrews 10 verse 4 tells us, we're not there yet, but it tells us, for it is not possible, not possible, meaning impossible, that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. It never took away sins. What did it do? Covered it. Your sin was still there. It just covered it. God didn't see the sin. He saw the blood. He saw the blood. Your sin was still there. It wasn't removed. It was just covered. But today, God remembers them no more. Your sins are dealt with once and for all. They're taken away. Listen, this is true even of Israel. In Romans 11, Paul talks about the salvation of Israel in verses 26 to 27. And so all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come out of Zion and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. I'm going to take the ungodliness away and I'm going to take away their sins. It's true for Israel. He is not done with them. As you learned yesterday, and hopefully we'll remember, Israel will turn, but they're going to turn when they go through a very difficult time of Jacob's trouble called the tribulation. But listen, it's also true of the church as well. The church is seen in Revelation 22 along with all believers from all times past. And in verses 3 to 4, it says, there shall be no more curse. That means no more sin, past, present, future. No more sin, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. They shall see his face, face and his name shall be on their foreheads. <laughs> yeah, that's your future. Listen, there's no more curse there. There's no sin. In fact, God, you have a better relationship with God. He puts his name on your foreheads. That's incredible. Do you see how much better the new covenant is in comparison to the old? It is established on so many better things. Some people are getting caught up into this going back to the old way stuff, going back to old covenant stuff. They must not have read this because the new covenant is built on much better promises. You can go that route. You won't have a better relationship with God. You won't have complete forgiveness of sin, and you won't have the ability to obey him, which comes with the Holy Spirit. Can you do that without those things? Absolutely not. You need all those things. He's a better covenant because it comes with superior promises. And therefore, the new covenant completely replaced the old. That's verse 13. Look at it. We'll close with this. In that he says, a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. Now, what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. The old covenant with the uh, old sacrificial systems ended when the, the veil of the temple was torn. When Jesus gave up the ghost, when he cried out, it is finished, when he died on that cross, that veil that separated man from God, the holy to the holy place, right? That veil was torn. And it was, I'm talking, not a little sheet, a veil this thick. It was torn from top to bottom to signify access to God. And also to signify that old process is done away with. That old covenant, it's done. Now, here's what's interesting. This verse is prophetic because at the time this was written, that old temple still stood. There were still priests out there sacrificing, bringing animals and sacrificing. Uh, there, there was still an altar. There was still the Holy of Holies. All that stuff was there. But at the time this was written, he says, 
It's ready to vanish away. It's becoming obsolete. Now listen to this. History, Roman general Titus, five years after this point, went in and destroyed Jerusalem, took down the temple. There was no altar. There was no holy of holies. There could be no sacrifices and no ministering of priests. That happened not five years after this was written. That's why he says it's becoming obsolete and it's ready to vanish away. That was a prophetic warning. You can hold on to it. Now, remember, he is talking to Jews that want to go back to the old system. You can hold on to that if you want. But listen, you've got about five years left, and then it's gone. It's obsolete. It's ready to be completely taken away. And the destruction of the temple completely closed the old covenant. We stand completely under a new covenant built on better promises, a better nature. It's internal The law of God is written in the hearts and minds of his people and we're indwelt with his Holy Spirit. A better relationship. He says, I will be their God. He's given himself to us. And he says, and you're going to be my people. He takes us to himself. He writes his name on our foreheads. Amazing. We're going to have a better knowledge. Everyone under the new covenant knows the Lord. There aren't any that don't. You know him. And we have a better forgiveness. Your sins are forgiven. God does not remember them anymore. Are you not thankful that we are under the new covenant today? God is amazing. We'll look next week at just the beginning of uh, chapter 9, and we're going to take that break in Psalms. So don't forget about the new covenant. We'll touch on it more next week. Thank you so much, God, for this time in your word. Your word is amazing. But most important, Lord, thank you so much for the new covenant. You proved through the old covenant, that mankind simply cannot do it. We, we cannot live up to the standard of perfection. We can't. We're frail and we're sinful. And you know exactly what we need. We needed help. And you sent us the helper. You gave us the Holy Spirit to come inside us, to indwell us, to empower us, to give us the desire and the ability to obey you. No, not perfectly. We won't, none of us obey you perfectly this side of eternity. But now we have a desire to do so. And we can see transformed lives in the community of the believer. And Lord, we have no sin. Our sins are remembered no more. And that is because because of our high priest, Jesus Christ, who forgives us of our sins. They're taken away. We have no sin anymore. Lord, thank you so much for your word to us today. Or maybe be reminded as we go today that our ability to love you, to please you, to obey you, just does not come by our own strength. It's not by I, but through Christ in me, as we're about to sing. May we sing these words with maybe a better understanding today of what this new covenant actually brings to us, Lord, and leave today filled with incredible joy and encouragement. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Would you stand with me and we'll sing uh, this song.